The Guardian. Hello, I'm Vicky Frost, culture editor of Guardian Australia, and you're listening to our Adelaide Festival podcast. Uh, the rain has driven us inside on this drizzly night, uh, but that's fine. That's perfect festival weather, really, isn't it? We've spent quite a lot of sunny days in dark spaces. It sort of feels better when it's raining outside. I'm joined by our critics, Alex Needham and Jana Perkovic. Hello. Uh, hello. Hello. Um, and because this is our last podcast of the festival, we're going to be looking back at our festival highs and festival lows and pulling together some thoughts about uh, this Adelaide festival as a whole. But first, a little riddle for you. What do you get if you crossed raw gut strings, electric guitars, wine glasses and a concert hall? Jana? You get Continuum, a music programme by the Australian String Quartet. Stay listening and you'll hear a fascinating interview with cellist Sharon Draper and we'll be heading backstage at the Australian String Quartet Soundcheck before the Continuum concert tonight. But first, the producer of our Adelaide Festival podcast, Belinda Lopez, braved the rain and went in search of fossils at the South Australian Museum's Diggit Gallery. And now I should say that Diggit is meant to be an educational experience for children, specifically, uh, but Belinda seems to have missed that. Can I get in the pit? Yeah, of course. Okay, all right. And, uh, okay, so I'm going to have a dig around and see what I can find. My name's Aaron Caymans. I'm a paleontologist from Flinders University, and we've just got a series of dig pits around the place for the kids to come and have a look at and learn a bit about the different fossils we've got here in South Australia. Paleontology always strikes me as one of those careers that you dream of doing as a kid. You know, there's vets, there's pilots, there's paleontologists. Was that the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. I started playing with dinosaurs when I was about five years old and just never really gave up on it. Well, my name Which is Diego Garcia Valido. I come from Madrid uh, and the, I work with the fossils you are standing on. So these are Ediacaran and Cambrian fossils. So about 500 million years ago, before the big... Ex- what we call the Cayman Explosion, the big appearance of all the animal groups we know today. So arthropods and mollusks and all those groups appear uh, just before this time period. Past the appearance of the first animals, there is what we call a arms race. So an organism defends itself with a shell, and obviously that has, if you want to be able to eat something and not die, you're going to have to get bigger teeth. It's, a, it's an arms race, really, about who it's who and how you protect yourself and how you're able to outsmart your prey. I mean, it sounds like an epic battle. You've got the Cumbrian explosion, the arms race. I mean, you could make a movie out of this. Definitely, of course. If, if we're able to uh, put a camera and send it back in time and, and record what we were looking at, we wouldn't be far from some of the, uh, of the alien movies that we're thinking about, the, you know, the ones with, with, uh, with organisms eating each other, uh, uh, preying on each other, and others being smart enough to dig under the sediment and escape. Yeah, it, was, it must have been horrendous but beautiful. And then these ones here on the left, this is, uh, it's quote-unquote a giant marsupial uh, predator, uh, and uh, in quotes I mean lion, because it's not a true lion obviously, it just has a size equivalent or slightly smaller than probably one of the lions, a little bit smaller than a lion today. I'm, I'm just looking at the, the representation they have, there, and it looks like a koala on steroids or something. It looks horrifying. Well, it's, it's good that you should notice that because it's actually its closest living relatives are wombats and koalas. Um, but this is an animal that has evolved to hypercarnivory from completely herbivorous stock. So unlike all the carnivorans, the ma- majority of meat-eating animals we see on other continents, this has actually arisen from something that probably would have looked like a little brush-tailed possum about 35 million years ago. 
and has gone through into the super predator, the original drop bear. <laughs> so what went wrong? Why, why did the possum become so mean? I don't think it went wrong. I think it went right. So, well, it's just about different animals through the process of evolution and natural selection expanding to fill the niches that are available in the environment they're in. So Thylacoleo was the apex predator in the majority of the sort of late Pleistocene of Australia. I mean, are you telling children about this stuff yes, at Dig yes. It? They have to learn about this. This is, this is their, that's why they're here. Uh, evolution is about appearance and disappearance of species due to natural selection. And some, make it, some species make it, others don't. And some, some, uh, a few of them adapt and, and, and eventually with time turn into something that's better adapted for that new environment. And uh, they're able to survive and, and produce offspring. And that's what it's all about, surviving. And why is that so important for children to learn? I think it gives them a perspective that if you just think that you're here and that's not moving, uh, that nothing changes, you get the wrong, uh, the wrong idea. Everything is changing, uh, both at genetic level and at uh, population level. The environment is changing now. We've got glo global uh, change upon us. And although changes in weather and climate has happened before, it hasn't happened at this speed, at this uh, scale. So it is, it is kind of giving you the idea that things change things are not steady uh, but because we look at it in, in amounts of, of time that are human which are 50, 100 years we don't realise that unless you're being told if you're told things change a lot and it would just go back 100,000 years or even 40,000 years for the Thylacoleo this would have been a completely different environment just 40,000 years is almost nothing so, you know, these kids standing in the pit where I am are, are actually, you know, playing but confronting fairly big questions at an early age. Definitely, definitely. I think it's good. Uh, they might not be able to actually come up with answers, but it, it'll give them questions to ask themselves or ask their parents. They will have an inquisitive mind, and I think it's about that. At this age, being four or five years old, you can't expect them to uh, provide answers for some of the big questions that we've been asking ourselves for uh, 200 years. Whether they end up working on paleontology or zoology, biology, chemistry, or even law, they'll have to ask themselves questions. Why are things the way they are? And if they start at this uh, young age, they're going to be better off. Dr. Diego Garcia Balida and Dr. Erin Caymans from the South Australian Museum, speaking now with our audio producer, Belinda Lopez. You're listening to Guardian Australia's Adelaide Festival podcast. I'm Vicky Frost, and it's time now for... The Adelaide Fringe. The Fringe. Oh, the Adelaide Fringe. The Adelaide Fringe. The Fringe. With Jane Howard. It was a public holiday in Monday yesterday, so it was pretty quiet, but the Garden of Unearthly Delights was filled with families seeing shows. I started off the day with Swamp Juice, which is a shadow puppetry work from a Canadian artist called Jeff Alton and his company Bunk Puppets. It was a really fun show. He did that thing where you see both the puppet and the shadow and the puppets were all made out of recycled material and cardboard. He completely engaged the audience and really encouraged the kids to yell and to scream and to gasp. It's a story about a man in a swamp and the creatures that are there. And the finale of the show though is really extraordinary. It's been billed as 3D shadow puppetry. And that's exactly what it is. I don't know what I expected, but it's 3D shadow puppetry. He uses red and blue lights and red and blue 3D glasses. And it's quite incredible to think this thing that movie studios spend millions and millions of dollars on can be done so simply and so well. At night, I went 
to Tuxedo Cat to see Edge, which is in the comedy program of The Fringe by a Melbourne company called Isabel and Rachel. It was a really funny show, but it's ultimately incredibly confronting about an 11-year-old girl called Stella, who was a YouTube sensation when she was eight, and she's decided that she needs to edge up her image to stay in the spotlight. What's really interesting about this show is how the artists actively push the audience to the point where we stop laughing. You feel really complicit in the downfall of this 11-year-old girl, even though you can see that she's being played by a 25-year-old. There was quite an amazing moment where she decides she needs to get a serious boyfriend and asks all of the boys in the audience to stand up. And all of the men in the audience actively refused to stand and she had to ask multiple times and then bring the house lights up before they did. There are so many complex ideas in there. It's a, I think they'll be really interesting artists to watch, particularly if they continue on in this political comedy area. That was going to be the end of my night. And then as happens when you're at venues like the Tuxedo Cat, an usher comes in and they're like, do you want to see a show for free? There's games and there's party bags. And I said, yes, that'll be great. The first 10 minutes were great. There were games and there were party bags. And then the show devolved into this bad sketch comedy. There was the killing of cats and there was prosthetic penises and there was sexist jokes and the opera house crashed and burned. And needless to say, none of these things are things I found particularly fun or particularly funny. And I think I should have called it a night with Edge. That show was Bound for Glory and that runs at Tuxedo Cat until the 16th. Edge is also at Tuxedo Cat until the 16th and Swamp Juice plays at the Garden of Unearthly Delights until the 16th. That was Guardian Australia's Jane Howard. Thanks, Jane, for all your great reviews this week. On stage, you'll find a cello, a set of glasses filled with varying amounts of water, and the four players who are creating this hauntingly beautiful music. We're at the soundcheck for the Australian String Quartet's Continuum, uh, they're performing on Tuesday night at Adelaide Town Hall. Cellist Sharon Draper took some time out to speak to our critic, Joanna Perkovich. You play a wide range of instruments yeah. uh, in the evening. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, apart from two sets of string quartets, one being the acoustic set of Guadagnini's that we always play on, um, there's also a set of completely electric instruments that Yamaha have loaned to us for this particular concert season. So, I mean, that's a lot of variety as it is. And also on the acoustic instruments, unlike what we normally play on, which is, you know, a modern string setup, we are playing on raw gut, mostly raw gut strings for the first half of the program. Um, apart from that, we also have two gongs and maracas, thimbles, um, there's a set of crystal glasses that are bowed with violin and double bass bows. Um, gosh, there's probably something I'm leaving out. Glass rods that are used to tap the instruments. We even have to play the instruments upside down in a couple of the movements. So there's, there's a lot going on in this particular concert series. What is the age range between the most modern and the oldest instruments you will be playing? Well, enormous. The Guadagnini's were made in the 1700s. Um, my cello was made in... 1743 for example and these Yamaha instruments obviously are, I'm not sure exactly when they were made but you know within the last few years so a huge range. 
Was it challenging to learn the uh, some of the more sort of out there instruments, or um, could a, could an amateur learn to play, you know, the crystal champagne glasses just as well as a professional musician? That's a really good question. I was about to say it's quite easy. For example, the crystal glasses, which you use a string instrument bow to bow the edge of the glass, much like you know the same concept if you're at a dinner party and you run your finger around the edge of the glass. But, you know, maybe we are at an advantage because we're so used to holding the bow. Um, maybe it would be a little trickier for an amateur or someone who doesn't play a string instrument, but still, I think it's probably anyone who practices for a little bit would be able to do that with their glasses, for example. And for brass, you use some antiquated instruments. Um, were they more challenging to play? What is the benefit of them? Uh, well, the instrument, the Guadagninis that we're playing on from the 1700s, they're still um, what string players use today. It's just the strings that are on these instruments that are the raw gut strings, which um, are more like the strings that we use in the time that the pieces by Brahms and Boccherini that we're playing were composed. So the contrast in uh, instrumentation and style between the pieces tonight are pretty stark. So we move from Brahms and Boccherini, who are late 18th, early 19th century composers, to um, Stephen Whittington, who's contemporary Australian, and um, George Crumb's Black Angels, which was written during the Vietnam War. What is the, the through line, so to speak, that holds these pieces together? I think um, one of the interesting things about this program, there's no obvious tie between the music. I think what we thought would make this an exciting program was that there just is an enormous variation of style, an enormous range of um, period. And I think it was actually the contrast in styles of these pieces that we thought would make an exciting program. I, there's no there's no continuous um, link or story. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's an ironic use of the continuum title. Maybe that's why they decided to call it that. Uh, but yeah, I think it was actually just, we thought that would be very exciting to do, to play one half on gut strings and the other half on electric instruments, the other end of the spectrum, and that would be a challenge. Is it a more challenging evening than if you only had a Guadagnini the whole time? Yes, I think so. Um, the gut strings are more of a challenge, even though they're on the Guadagnini, so we're used to those instruments. But uh, the use of raw gut strings um, requires... a a slightly different way of playing. Uh, it feels very different under the left hand fingers, but also the use of the bow needs to be a little bit different to how you would play if it was a modern setup. Also, the strings are quite temperamental, so you know, changes in humidity and temperature really affects the intonation, so that takes a lot of tweaking. Mm -hmm. um, so, that alone is a challenge, and the electric instruments, they're very easy to play, um, but I think the most difficult thing about the crumb was just coordinating who needs to be playing what instrument at what time, you know, where you put your bow down and then you need to walk across to the other side of the stage to pick up a gong mallet and hit the gong. And there were a few moments in rehearsals where, you know, you'd, you'd find that you're holding a maraca in a hand when you're actually meant to be bowing the wine glasses on the other side of the stage. So that was probably one of the challenges with the crumb as well. It's a lot of fun. There was a lot of giggling going on in rehearsals. Now that we've got it sorted out and we know what instrument or what mallet or bow to pick up next we're hoping that we've got it down to a very smooth <laughs> looking art form rather than just frantically running around the stage 
cellist Sharon Draper speaking there with Jana Perkovic, who, uh, of course, now joins me now with Alex Needham. Hello. 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 Uh, and we're going to discuss now, we're going to get some feelings of the festival as a whole, because we've been here for a while. We've kind of seen quite a lot of stuff, and I think it's time to sort of start bringing it together. So how's your festival been? I guess let's start with you, Alex. Uh, well, I've had quite a hardcore, highbrow experience, really. I saw John Waters on the first night, but apart from that, everything's been kind of avant-garde music of one stripe or another. So I had two nights at Unsound, which was all electronic music, and then I went to Tectonics, which was a kind of mixture of um, avant-garde classical and sort of 20th century orchestral music. And um, now I'm going to John Zorn, which is uh, where he kind of does everything from jazz to film music, and but all, again, with a very avant-garde spirit. So I've, I'm going to be quite avant-garded out by the end of it, I think. I mean, I do think that is a criticism of this festival, actually. I, you know, I, I find it slightly unbalanced, I think. You know, the programming is very interesting, um, but it does sort of really does skew one way. I kind of feel like... If you're not that interested in avant-garde music, and then there's not that much for you, perhaps, you know? I think there's possibly been... I mean, there is a lot of crossover, definitely, between the weirder end of um, the electronic stuff that's shown on Unsound. I mean, on um, Unsound, Empty Set are sound artists, and there were a lot of sound artists playing yesterday at Tectonics. And I think you do... I, I do think there has been quite a lot of um, blokes manipulating synthesizers and making a, a terrible racket i mean that's that's definitely got got its place but it's possibly been overrepresented. i think um, in the program I, yeah I, I wonder what you think about that yona i think you know I, i'm surprised by how few women seem to be in this festival to be honest i have seen a number of women but i had a very similar experience from the other side of the gender spectrum i normally see quite a lot of dance live art and otherwise bizarre forms and often feel like i'm the only one seeing this uh, weird stuff while everyone else is having fun somewhere else um but at this festival it felt like um there was not a small um, avant-garde audience there with me. Everyone was with me at these quite strange shows. It felt like this was what was on offer. Um, that's very positive. So you feel that kind of, you know, people have embraced those kind of physical and, and, and dance works sort of to, as to, an audience. To be entirely honest, I felt like they that this was on offer, that they didn't really have, um, you know, Shakespeare or something a little bit more... Um, mainstream it felt like we were very much on the edges of the artistic spectrum in terms of the offer yeah I mean there has been Shakespeare but it's been avant-garde Shakespeare haven't they they did the Roman tragedies um, in Dutch at that but uh, yeah the foot the, 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 yeah, yeah although there is also the Shadow King which is um, and it, which is of course the indigenous King Lear which has toured around Australia and you know windmill stuff while extremely great theatre for teenagers and actually I suppose fairly at the edges of teenager for theatres of theatre for teenagers you know um, you know it's, it's fairly mainstream and of course the seagull is a very traditional retelling of it so mm. I don't know I, I guess it is there perhaps mm. But I have also been to a number of events where I felt very strongly that the audience was a little bit confused by what was going on. Um, I saw a uh, actually quite beautiful sort of feminist burlesque by Maura Finnegan and Jackie Smith. They are Melbourne-based uh, burlesque uh, producers, essentially. And this was... This is part of the fringe, isn't it? Yeah. I believe so, yes. And it had a beautiful range of women performers, acrobats, uh, hula hoopers, um, dancers. 
But it also had, a, it was very edgy, it had a lot of nudity and uh, I felt very much that the people around me were a little bit, um, that they didn't know what to think. Well, I wonder whether that's sort of a, a question about kind of fringe burlesque in general, you know. I, I think you could probably argue either way, sort of whether this is kind of groundbreaking art that's brilliant for women or actually loads of people in corsets and you know you know what I mean I think that's yeah. actually quite a blurry area anyway and and this fringe does seem to be have a particular concentration I think of those kind of acts maybe shall we shall we choose our highlights though because it feels like we've sort of uh, or particularly I've kind of muttered and I don't mean to I mean there's been lots of great work here it's, I think for me it's been a question of balance and um, uh, I guess Windmill for me has been the highlight because they're an Australian company I hadn't come across before and I think they're doing really interesting new work and new writing. So I guess they're my highlights. What about you, Alex? I really enjoyed an early piece in Tectonics on Sunday which was called uh, Listening Styles and it's by uh, Matthew Shlomovitz and um, it was a world premiere of a commission. He's an Australian uh, composer. It had a great solo by Eugene Ugetti who's a soloist with speak percussion who are these percussionists and it was just a really brilliant piece it was kind of dissonant but at the same time accessible and I think it almost summed up um, the best of what tectonics is about and I, and I can guess yours I think Yona mm, I've already said but Sheva's uh, Sade 21 was an absolute highlight this is a company at top of its power impeccably choreographed and incredibly performed and I do think actually the power of this festival is that you have Wemadelaide at the same time, you have Fringe at the same time. I mean, Documentary Fest, which we've hardly touched, we've hardly gone near, you know, the biennial uh, of Australian art and other visual art. So it's kind of, I guess it's about that sort of scale of it. It feels very, it feels massive, doesn't it? And that's exciting. Yeah, definitely. There's been something happening everywhere. You you go in the city, it really it really brings it alive. And there's a great atmosphere on the streets. And that's that's down to the festival, I think. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Jana. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, and this is our last podcast from the Adelaide Festival. Uh, we've loved exploring the events with you and uh, we've also produced a massive amount of content about it. Too much, perhaps. I'm exhausted. Uh, if you go to uh, theguardia.com slash au, you'll find all our video, audio, reviews and gorgeous pictures uh, from the festival. Do go and have a look. And if you still want more to see, uh, then you might try something like this. You're hearing work by visual artist Benedict Drew, who's appearing in the Worlds in Collision exhibition at the South Australian School of Art, and that runs until the 28th of March. Be sure to check it out. I'm Vicky Frost, culture editor of Guardian Australia. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been produced all week by Belinda Lopez. When the pace of the breathe in and breathe out instructions accelerates towards hyperventilation, all other text images disappear. The breathing instructions flash up, almost strobe-like, before the screen cuts to black.